to be. Or not to be. That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep no more and by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to plays the thing that was Andrew Scott playing the role of Hamlet in the 2018 production of Hamlet, the famous to be or not to be speech. We're so glad you joined us. I am Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Andrew Kern. And you have joined us for the third act of Hamlet. We're, we're coming into act three right after we hear at the close of act two the kind of namesake phrase that gave the title to this podcast, the plays, the thing Hamlet at the end of act two says the plays, the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the King. So at the end of act two, we are set up in this act for Hamlet to commission actors who have arrived at the castle to reenact the murder of his father in front of Hamlet's uncle and his mother, Claudius and Gertrude. So that's the kind of setup. That's what we're expecting in this act. But before that happens, we hear this famous, beautiful, marvelous monologue from Hamlet, to be or not to be, while he's kind of going for a walk. Ophelia has been planted to kind of um, get some answers from Hamlet. She's been planted by... Polonius, her father, and Claudius, the king. But before we see Ophelia, we hear to be or not to be. Um, Andrew, the speech, I mean, if we, a lot of us are not familiar with kind of medieval forms of rhetoric. This speech is in the mode of um, medieval disputation, isn't it? I would say so. And it's it's similar to if you're putting a speech together and you have a, a question, right? And then, and then you take your question and you convert it to an issue, weather, right? So, so people who know classical rhetoric or who know lost tools of writing specifically does that, where you take a, whatever the question is that you're writing about and then convert it, <clears throat> convert it to an issue. Because then when it's an issue, it is specifically yes or no. And that's easier to manage. And hmm. so in a scholastic disputation, it was common. And remember that he, Hamlet's just back from Wittenberg at, at college. And so it was common to, to take a question, try to specify what exactly the question is. And you'd spend a lot of time trying to figure out just what exactly is the question. 
And then you would convert it into an issue and reason the two sides. And that's basically what he's doing here is having an argument with himself. And when you say, what do you mean converted into an issue? What oh, does thank that you. mean? So, so, so an issue begins with the word weather, the way I'm using the term. So he says to be or not to be, that is the question. And it's as if he's taking an academic exercise and making the mistake that no true schoolboy would make of applying it to his own life. And then, and then thinks, thinks, okay, what, but what really is the question here? What am I really trying to settle? What am I really trying to work out? And, he, and he's never satisfied with any question until he gets to the fundamental underlying question of everything, which is to be or not to be. Hmm. Right? And then he takes the to be or not to be question and he converts it, as I say, into an issue. Whether, okay, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, that's one option, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Now, I got to add that Hamlet is Hamlet. He, he doesn't stick to the rules. And so immediately he starts to wander around and explore. And, you know, he, he's doing more invention than arrangement, let's say. But he's, the whole purpose of this in his head is to determine whether he wants to be or not be. And so the two main points that he's kind of arguing within himself are to be or not to be, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and errors of outrageous fortune. How would you summarize that one? Gosh, I'd hate to have to summarize it, but since you've asked me to, um, whether it's a, whether it's a nobler thing to keep living, even though life is so incredibly difficult. And the opposite point that he's arguing would be. Well, those, those outrageous fortune, those terrible, terrible things that are happening to you, the sea of troubles that are washing over you, or at least about to wash over you, would it be better to oppose them, to, to say no to, to all, the, all the troubles that are coming your way? And, and in so doing, know that you're going to get killed. Know yeah. that you're going to die. And is, it, and is it, Andrew, do you think it's to be, I always read it as a, que- a question of suicide. Possibly. I think it's Hamlet though, right? So, so is it, it, it could be about suicide. It also could be, I know for sure that if I resist these troubles, I'm dead. Yeah. Should I still do it? Yeah. Cause he's asking at least, at, at least at the beginning, right? It's very possible that by the end he's changed and he's, he's settled on suicide, but, but at the beginning he's asking about what's nobler, right? That's his value. What is no, he doesn't ask what's more advantageous. He's not a pragmatist. He asks, what is nobler in the mind? Right? Should I, is it nobler if I bear all these slings and arrows that outrageous fortune is hurling at me? Mm-hmm. Is that nobler or, or is it better? In a sense, it might, be, it might be that he's saying, should I just passively endure them or should I rise up? Should I grab my weapons and attack them and go after them even though I know they're going to kill me? Yeah. Should I be a martyr on, tied to a post or should I be a war, warrior going into battle? That's one mm. possibility. But mm. as I say, it's Hamlet. It could be anything. So the, the monologue proceeds and he, among other things, names all of the things that come to plague us in life. Part of the reason I think that it's so powerful, this monologue is so powerful, is that the audience can identify with it um, as themselves, not through reflection through the character of Hamlet. You know, there's kind of, there's an immediacy to it. Like we've all 
had to bear the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contemplating, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office. We've all, we've all been there. And who has not asked the question, like, you know, on particularly awful occasions, whether it's not better to just like lay, to lay down arms and give up. And I think this monologue articulates it in this incredibly powerful way. I think that the best performances of this, and I count Andrew Scott's to be among them, are kind of when all of the trappings of the stage are kind of dismissed and Mm -hmm. Hamlet just talks directly to the audience. Heidi and Andrew, what does Hamlet ultimately resolve? I'm going to put it in a slightly different way. Um, why do not, why do men not kill themselves or why would Hamlet not charge into the situation and get himself killed? I have an answer that's off expectations, perhaps. My answer is that because Ophelia walks up to him. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think he finishes the argument and he sees Ophelia and stops. He says, he says, he says, um, enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard that, you know, that, that I'm going to die or that I don't know what's going to happen after I die enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Soft, you know, the fear of (laughs) So, So in other words, there's, there's two things we don't know. What happens to us after we die and women? Those are the two things we don't know. I mean, that's not wrong. Heidi, now's it's a wonderful opportunity for you to solve the mystery for us. The nunnery might relate to that, though. Yeah, I think that as we get through this, this model, I mean, this is, as you've pointed out, Tim, this might be the most famous monologue, certainly the most famous soliloquy in all of Shakespeare's canon, uh, the to be or not to be speech. Um, everybody... Like, Everybody recognizes that line, right? To be or not to be. And most of us don't know even the first mm. time we heard it or, you know, uh, but it's. That was my first yeah. time. <laughs> it's, that was your first time hearing it? It might have been mine. I don't know. I can't remember. But he comes to this really interesting conclusion. And I'm, I'm so glad, Andrew, that you pointed out about um, that he's asking the question, which is nobler? And I think we have in this soliloquy a bit of a microcosm of the whole play which is this man who's asking which is what is the noble way what is what is the way of of righteousness and by the end of the speech he comes down to because i'm so scared mm-hmm. to die right and so there's this trajectory uh, uh, in in the speech that starts out with nobility and arrives at fear. And as you say, Andrew, he's interrupted at the end of the speech. And so we don't know, like, is he going to circle back around to nobility and, and answer his own question with a, a righteous act, righteous action? Or is he going to trail off and kind of lose himself along the way because he's interrupted? And I think that that's a, a microcosm of the entire yeah. plot, right? Yeah. It also it also dawns on me as as we we're talking about this that if if Hamlet was just what Horatio called himself an antique pagan, it, it'd be no big deal to kill himself, right? But but being a Christian, 
and 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 dealing thinking of this from the Christian paradigm makes it a lot harder for Hamlet. And I and I think one of the things that Shakespeare might be getting at here is just how hard it is to be a Christian when you when you I mean on the one hand being a Christian gives you these deep and profound answers, but on the other hand, it doesn't let you escape. It's 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 a religion that that never lets you escape from truth and reality. I think that's a great foreshadowing to what we're going to see with Claudius, the mm. king, because after we see, after the to be or not to be speech, we see the play within Hamlet. And the play is, of course, kind of um, planted by Hamlet in the mouths of the actors. And Claudius, upon seeing the play, recognizes that this play is reenacting his murder of his brother. And Claudius kneels to pray and he needs mercy. It's really clear he needs mercy, but it's also clear that he does not think that he can get it. Actually, if, if it's okay with you guys, let's move forward. I actually want to play a little bit of audio of Claudius on his knees praying and feeling as if his prayers are not able to reach heaven. Let's listen to this. My offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon a brother's murder. <sighs> Pray can I not? Though inclination be as sharp as will, my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. And like a man to double business bound, I stand in pause where I shall first begin and both neglect. What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? Whereto serves mercy but to confront the visage of offense? And what's in prayer but this twofold force to be forestalled ere we come to fall? Or pardoned, being down? Then I look up. My fault is past. But oh, what? form of prayer can serve my turn. Forgive me my foul murder. That cannot be, since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder, my crown, my own ambition, and my queen. May one be pardoned and retain the offense? Pray can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will, my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. And like a man to double business bound, I stand and pause where I shall first begin and both neglect. Heidi, why does Claudius think he's not, he can't receive mercy? It's a great question. This is a really interesting scene, and there's a lot of things going on in this particular scene. Um, and for our listeners, I know we're skipping ahead a lot, but we'll we'll come back and kind of fill in the gaps there. Claudius knows that he's not truly repentant 
Like he's, he's saying, I got everything I wanted from murdering my brother and I don't want to give up a single part of it. So in the framework, the religious framework of the time, then that means because he is not truly repentant, uh, then he's going to die in his sins, whether he confesses or not. However, Hamlet is there watching and sees him in mm-hmm. a posture of prayer and thinks he's repenting. And so then Hamlet refuses then to do any violence to him, thinking he will just send his soul to heaven. And so there's a really interesting kind of three things going on here. There's Hamlet and his decision-making process. There's Claudius and what's going on in his soul. And then there's what it appears to be to Hamlet, which is really interesting because this, as we've talked about, this is a play a lot about seeming, what things seem to be and the conclusions that people jump to and the watching of each other along the way. Um, And and so there's there's multiple levels of... complexity that's engaged in this particular scene with Claudius. He, Claudius still, you mentioned this, Heidi. He says, oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me for my foul murder. That cannot be since I am still possessed of the effects for which I did the murder. My crown, my own ambition, and my queen. He still has got the stuff that he plundered by murdering his brother. And so he knows, therefore, his prayers are just kind of going to bounce under the glass, mm-hmm. you know, lid of heaven. They're not going to, they're not going to be listened to so long as he still holds on to the goods that he procured by the murder. But he's he, asking, he's asking it to be or not to be question. If, if, right. if he does repent, then he's going to die. He's going to be executed. Yeah. Right. Right. And so he chooses, doesn't he? He chooses, he's, he's, it's like a, the disputation is my soul or my crown and my queen. And he sticks with his crown and his queen. And for me, he was corrupt enough to commit murder in the first place. But at this point, I think he goes completely over to the dark side. Mm-hmm. Everything in the remainder of the play for Claudius, he's hellbent mm-hmm. literally on ending Hamlet's life. Almost every word that he utters is about either getting him into exile, where he'll be killed, Hamlet, or actually plotting for Hamlet to be done with. And I think before this scene, he was he was willing to accept Hamlet's presence. But after the scene, no more. He can't do it. And not like asking for mercy and kind of accepting the penalty from that he has no choice now, but to kind of like blot it out from his eyes. It's a real lesson in like the taint of sin, the effects of like what it looks like to really be corrupted. We kind of see it in real time. Sin's true nature. Yeah. But we start, he starts thinking, doesn't he, Andrew? No, 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 you go ahead, Heidi. Well, I was just going to say, this is why, for our listeners who are wondering why we skip so much of the plot here, this is what we're making connections between the to be or not to be speech and Claudius's speech here as he's um, in the chapel. And 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 that, it, Hamlet makes the statement that conscience makes cowards of us all, which is why we decide to live, even though life is unbearably hard, right? And, um, and, 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 
that's one of the questions of the play. Why doesn't Hamlet act, right? And people make all kinds of assumptions about that. And um, and the text never tells us exactly why he does not choose to act. It gives us reasons, but as the play seems to point out, sometimes the reasons are not our reasons, right? And um, and so there's so much more going on in the human soul. It's a it's a great mystery. Um, and what we have with Claudius is him saying, "I ha- I know I have an opportunity to repent," and. His conscience is not enough to move him towards repentance. Um, He is moved in his conscience. He has been caught. The play did catch the conscience of the king. And yet he still, he is a really introspective moment here when he knows he has an opportunity and yet he will give nothing up. That's, that strikes me because two, two things struck me. One is, if we had time and we don't, it would be interesting to talk about whether the word conscience is being used the same way both times. Oh, but, yeah. But, but more, or more something we can probably talk about more readily is Claudius actually mentions his conscience in, the, in that sense way back just before the to be or not to be speech. Mm. You might remember that Polonius and, and Claudius are, are talking and they're, they're putting Ophelia in front of Hamlet, right? They're, they're putting her there so that they can trap him, basically. They're, trying to, they're spying on him. And then, and Polonius, the, the fool, right? The court jester at, inadvertently says a crucial line. We are off to blame in this, he says. Tis too much proved that with devo- devotion's visage and pious action, we do sugar or the devil himself. Mm. And Claudius says, Oh, it is too true. He says that out loud. And then to himself, he says, to the audience, he says, how smart a lash that speech doth give my conscience. Conscience. So he's got a conscience at this point. I, I loved your point there, Tim, about when he becomes the dark Lord. I'd never thought of that before, where he goes fully over to the dark side. And I'm, now I got wondering, is that is that the real reason he sends Hamlet away? And then all the other stuff is just, you know, pretense. But but here he so. says, how smart a lash that speech doth give my conscience, right? So so back just before, just before Hamlet gives his to be speech, Claudius does mention his conscience, and then interestingly goes on to compare his conduct as king to the harlot. He says, mm. the harlot's cheek, beautied with plastering art, is not more ugly to the thing that helps it than is my deed to the most painted word. As a harlot decorates her face to make herself attractive, so I paint my words. I use rhetoric as ornamentation, as disguise, as a mask, so that I can, then I, so that I can carry this on. And, and then he complains, oh, heavy burden, you know, oh, this terrible burden I have to carry. You know, it's right. his fault. But, but it's interesting. I, wanna, I wanted to mention the harlot thing because, because there's going to be some wordplay on harlotry coming up in the in the discussion with Ophelia. Yeah, in fact, right now. So let's hear the beginning of um, Hamlet and Ophelia's scene. I, I think it's really interesting. Hamlet and Ophelia are like arguably one of the, you know, most famous literary couples in history. And they appear in this play on stage and alive exactly two times. Mm-hmm. And really one of them is the scene we're about to hear. And it's a blisteringly quick scene. The only time we see them together 
they're both watching the play and um, Hamlet kind of treats her as a complete cast off, but he treats her as a complete cast off because he has a strategy in this scene. And I want to ask you guys what his strategy is, but first let's listen to the scene between Hamlet and Ophelia. This is Hamlet played by Andrew Scott and Ophelia by Jessica Brown Finlay from the 2018 production. I did love you. Once. Indeed, my lord, you made me believe so. You should not have believed me. I loved you not. I was the more deceived. Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? I am myself indifferent, honest, yet I could accuse me of such things. It would be better. My mother had not borne me. I am very proud, revengeful, <laughs> ambitious, with more offenses at my back than I have thoughts to put them in, imagination to give them shape, or time to act them in. We are arrant knaves all. Believe none of us. Go thy ways to a nunnery, and quickly too. Hamlet says, I did love you once. You should not have believed me, for virtue cannot so inoculate our old stock, but we shall relish of it. I loved you not. Heidi, the last time we heard from Hamlet which was through these letters that Ophelia read to Polonius, her father, it sounds like he is mad for Ophelia. But now, no, he says he doesn't. I loved you once, believe it not. What's going on? What is this tactic here? What is, what is he trying to accomplish with her here? He's so mean, he's so mean to her. He is very, he's very cruel to her here. And it's... He doesn't know who he can trust right now. He's been, he knows that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are spying on him and they were his friends. He knows that his mother has betrayed him by being with Claudius. He knows that Claudius has murdered his father. Everything's falling down. And Ophelia, in his mind, might just perhaps be yet another one who is betraying him. And I think he's testing her here. I think he's venting his rage on her. Um, and I, I, but I don't think that's what he's telling himself. Right. And mm. I think what's so interesting about Hamlet in act three is he is feigning madness. Yes. Right. But at the same time, there's always this question in my mind of, is he act, is there an actual disintegration of the mind that's happening here as well? Uh, as Ophelia says, oh, what a noble mind is here or thrown, that there's, there is this sense that he never knows where he can put his weight down and how long can a human soul endure that before mm. it starts to become the madness that it is mm. thinks that it's only pretending. Right. And so in this scene with Ophelia, I always feel is so, so tragic because he is, he thinks he has some kind of strategic goal in mind here with Ophelia, but I, I wonder if he actually is cracking up a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe so, he is. We've seen evidence that maybe he is starting to lose it. We know that he, at the end of Act One, 
he says, I'm going to put on an antic disposition. I'm going to feign madness. But there's clearly evidences later in the play that he seems to actually be cracking up. He's not faking it. He's actually, he's actually cracking up a little bit. And so for you, maybe this is one of those occasions. Well, he's, he wants to know, right? What, where's your father? And Mm -hmm. he's, he's there. Polonius is spying. And so, and, and Ophelia is, so now Hamlet has a piece of evidence that Ophelia is choosing Polonius. She's choosing to be a spy. Now, Mm We ask ourselves, why is Ophelia doing this? It just gets so complex, right? Why is she doing it? Is she doing it because she actually is claiming to love Hamlet and she's really trying to love him? Um, and and as you said, Tim, earlier about Claudius, nobody but Hamlet knows at this point what Claudius has done. That's He's the only one except Horatio, right? They right. know because the ghost has appeared to them. Ophelia doesn't know it. Gertrude doesn't know it, right? So to them... He is acting like a crazy person. Hamlet is going mad. Mm-hmm. They have no idea what, why he's doing any of this. And so in Ophelia's mind, she could actually be trying to help Hamlet. So, same with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. But to Hamlet, they are nothing but betrayers and spies. And they have, so there's just this constant intersection of what things seem to be, what things actually are, who knows what. And, and it's all becoming just a tangled, rotten mess. Um, and this particular scene, I think, is maybe one of the ones that tugs on my heartstrings the most. Heidi, when we performed this um, scene, we kind of inserted a stage direction right before the line that you read, where's your father? So Hamlet says, get thee to a nunnery. Why would thou be a breeder of sinners? And he talks about, I am, I'm revengeful, ambitious with more offenses at my back than I have thoughts to put them in. Why don't be a breeder of sinners. And then coming out of this, he says, where's your father? And I read that as a stage direction that he has reason to believe that the father is listening that maybe he spotted his, maybe he spotted. I think he knows. Yes. Yeah. And so we played it as he did not know until that moment. Um. And so what it kind of does is it changes the scene. I mean, you know, so much in the performance of Shakespeare is you have to make choices about what is, what action is going to take place where, because there's so few stage directions. So we chose to have Hamlet discover Ophelia's father spying on them right before he says, where's your father? I think we even had Polonius like drop something or bump into something. So there was a noise on the stage and I turn and, oh, you know, now I know. And so what that does is the first half of this scene is Hamlet basically driving Ophelia away from him but not suspecting that she's spying on him. But then after that, oh, Ophelia sold me out. The one person I thought I could trust, she sold me out. So there's a real pivot in the scene that, that I really so like. in your performance, let me ask you this. Why is he so cruel to her at the beginning of the scene then? Why does he send her to a nunnery? Which, by the way, was also code for brothel at the time. And you could interpret it yeah. either way. Either way, it's um, mean. So why was he being so mean to her? That, was, yeah. that wasn't the beginning. 
that was right when he that was that was when he says, "Where is your father?" He, that it's that same paragraph. Right, right. But he's he's okay. being cruel to her, and so Heidi's question being, it, he's being cruel to her from the beginning. But why is he being cruel to to her if he doesn't believe that she's? If he doesn't yet know, right? right? Is it like he's driving her away so that she doesn't get caught up in it? Like he's trying to protect her? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's trying to create distance. Um, He doesn't want her to want to be around him. He wants to absolutely terminate the relationship because he knows it's got to get bloody sooner or later. It just has to get bloody sooner or later. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to push her away emotionally as far as I can get. But then there's this realization or this suspicion that she's in on it. Oh my goodness, you're in on it? The one that I trusted, you're in on it? And so that just makes the stakes even more catastrophic for both of them, you know? Um, I think it's interesting that after Hamlet leaves, crying out to her, get thee to a nunnery, insulting her, Ophelia's alone on stage and he has, I wonder if you could read it for us, Heidi. She's got beautiful lines after he leaves the stage, but before Polonius and Claudius return. Um, the, oh, what a noble mind yeah. is here or thrown. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to hear that. Yeah. Oh, what a noble mind is here or thrown. The courtiers, soldiers, scholars, eye, tongue, sword, the expectancy and rose of the fair state, the glass of fashion and the mold of form, the observed of all observers, quite, quite down. An eye of ladies most deject and wretched that sucked the honey of his music vows. Now see that noble and most sovereign reason like sweet bells jangled out of tune and harsh. That unmatched form and feature of blown youth blasted with ecstasy. Oh, woe is me to have seen what I have seen. See what I see. Such a lament for this lost Such a lament. reason. And I think it's completely legit. I think she's a thousand percent right about Hamlet, even though he might think that he is feigning. And because it all she what he also could have done is sat down and had like a direct conversation, which nobody seems to do in this play, which makes it a great play, like a really great play. Yeah. But man. <laughs> You just want to say, can we have a redo? And I just like ask you how it's going, Ophelia, and tell you what's going on. So, I, I want to, there's someone that both of you know, I'm not going to mention his name. He's a younger man and he played Hamlet in a college production, I believe. And I saw him at the Circe conference, as a matter of fact, before he played Hamlet and after he played Hamlet. And he was really excited to play Hamlet. I was so excited for him. And then I saw him after he'd played Hamlet and I said, how'd it go? Tell me how it went. And I, you know, was so excited for him. And he was distraught. He was so distraught. And I was like, what, what, what's the deal? And he said, Hamlet is so irrational. He's so irrational. And I was, I was really struck by his answer or by his response because, yeah, 
Yeah, him was irrational. And I was surprised that he was so, apparently he went through a really, really hard time. This young man did getting ready for the role. I talked to his dad about it. And it like Hamlet really got under his skin and he, there was so much about Hamlet's motivation that made no sense. And I said to his dad, I said, you know what that says to me? You have a really healthy family. The fact that this is utterly chaos, like feels so strange to him is evidence to me that you come from a really happy, like, you know, family that probably addresses things Heidi out in the open. They, you probably have direct conversations with each other. And because th- this is exactly the thing that cannot happen for Hamlet right now. It cannot happen for Hamlet right now. No one can speak directly to, you know, to each other, except for if they're saying, I want you to help me spy on somebody else. That's about the only direct thing that they can say to each other. You know, I, I think this play is, it's a revenge plot and it's set in an absolutely dysfunctional family and the dysfunctional family has all of the reins of power. No one can address anything directly, but maybe actually Hamlet is going to direct, directly address his mother after the scene has been played. But let's talk briefly about the scene. Um, Andrew, I have a question for you. Hamlet, and this is a little bit of a philosophical question. It's a little bit away from the text. Hamlet stages the reenactment of his father, um, hoping that he'll discover whether or not Claudius is guilty. My question for you is, is there something about a, a dramatic narrative, you know, like in a, an instantiated embodied drama. This is what we see on the stage. Is there something that that form does than a simple, straightforward address or question? Does, does it have greater power than a simple, straightforward statement or question like, you killed my dad. Did you kill my dad? Isn't there something about the, the, like the power of narrative that's showing up in this play within a play? Andrew, do you see it that way? What is the um, accusation against the media in the way conventional news is presented to us? What, 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 do, the, what do the people who disagree with the, the conventional presentation accuse the media of doing? Is it spoon feeding? Um, is that what? No, it's more what it's more in line with what you're talking about. W- what are they trying to control? Mm. What well, what I'm elements not- of what's going on do they tell us? Right. So, uh, uh, Heidi, you know the answer. No. So, well, you you I'm, you do you both do actually, but I've asked probably. a bad question. Yeah. It's, it's, they <laughs> want to control the narrative. Mm. Right. Right. So so what so. Nobody says they're trying to control the argument, right? We take it for granted that, that if there's a, an argument, people are selecting what goes into it. But if they're con- trying to control the narrative, it bothers us more. And, and mm-hmm. I think the reason for that is manifold. Reasons are manifold. But I think certainly what you're expressing is a big part of it, that we are, we are images we are analogies and we respond to analogies 
we have imaginations and those those parts of our soul are more responsive than the semantic rational part of our soul we we are stories and for all those reasons i think the most powerful way to catch a conscience is not to say to a person although claudius does state a principle and then i mean polonius states a principle and claudius is triggered by it a little bit he's not triggered but pierced by it What's the word he uses again? Um, Polonius or Claudius? A lash. How smart, Claudius says, how smart a lash that speech doth give my conscience. So he's mm. lashed by it, but he doesn't mm. respond to the lash. He doesn't change mm-hmm. his mind. But with the, with, with the story, because the story really, it's layered and it, and it keeps coming at him and it, he's no escape from it. And so the story is, is multi multi Tutinously, <laughs> more, 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 um, it incarnadines more. <laughs> it's much more effective. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's much more effective to use a story that our Lord does it. Certainly he tells us parables instead of giving us arguments most of the time. Although he right. certainly well, does. And, parables. Well, and one of his parables is about how the truth of the gospel will the seed that's planted will sometimes bear fruit and sometimes it gets snatched away, mm-hmm. right? Or sometimes it gets choked out. And so when Hamlet attempts to catch the conscience of the king, it works, right? It works for Claudius and it works for Gertrude, but it it doesn't bear the fruit of repentance that leads them mm-hmm. to the potential to mend and to heal. And, uh, and, and that's one of the tragedies of the play. Hamlet had a good idea. It just, and it worked, but it didn't, stick you know and that's yeah. that that's yeah. our that's the human soul like that that is i think one of the questions that we have in the play which is what what how does a human soul respond to truth and respond to conviction and what we have with gertrude and with claudius is in that moment they were caught they didn't resist they were caught by the story but it didn't bear any lasting fruit. Does it, does it make you, does it make you more kind of stunned and impressed by King David to think, to compare David with Claudius? Yeah. Because, because David, the same stakes, right? He, he, it was, it wasn't a brother, but it was a general. It was a high ranking general in his army. And, and if he, if he confessed what he had done, he was supposed to be executed for it. He was supposed to lose his queen. He was supposed to lose his kingdom. And for whatever reason, the Lord showed mercy to him because of his repentance. But it's, it's right. in, the reason I thought of that is because Nathan does the same thing in principle. He doesn't, he doesn't tell David, this is what you did. He tells him a story. He, he, you mm-hmm. could say he puts on a play for him. Yeah. And, and I love this because the word parable is actually, it's not a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. It comes from parabole. And bole means to, to toss. throw out. Yeah. And, and para means beside, right? So, so para can mean, so, so para bole means you take the ball, you take the truth that you want the person to see and you toss it beside the person. It's up to that person whether he picks it up or not. It's up to that mm-hmm. person what he does with it. He might pick it up and throw it back at you, right? But, but in David's case, he picks it up and you could say eats it and repents. And in Claudius's case, he picks it up and tries to destroy Hamlet with it or completely ignores it. Well, so oh, go he ahead. runs from it. 
I'm really curious what you all think about Hamlet here, because, man, this play is so complex and so nuanced, and I have a completely new experience of it every time I read it or talk about it or see it performed. Um, And so the same could be said of Hamlet, right? That there was something tossed out and given to him. Right here, here is like my brother killed me. The ghost of his father says, Claudius killed me and took my bride. And I want you to avenge me. And Hamlet has an opportunity to do so here. And he doesn't do it. And we're given his reason. Right. He tells us the reason, because I will send Claudius his soul to heaven because he's repenting of his sin right now. Now, we have an insight into Claudius, knowing that that's not actually what he's doing. Actually, at that moment, he's rejecting repentance and is probably the most likely to be sent to hell at that moment, according to their theological framework. Right. So if Hamlet Hamlet doesn't know that to your point, he doesn't know it because everything's about seeming. Right. Um, And so was this a moment of divine? opportunity that Hamlet ignored? Or is this his conscience leading him into kind of a Greek tragedy kind of thing in which there is no possible way for him to know? And so therefore he is caught in these forces that are beyond him. And of course, it's going to inevitably lead to tragedy, but he didn't necessarily create it himself. It was just like a faded for him to miss it kind of thing. And I'm, I'm curious, was because you could say Hamlet failed to respond to the parable or exactly as Claudius did, or is there something else at, at play here? What are your thoughts? I think he, I think if the parable is Hamlet's father's um, desire that Hamlet avenge him, then I think that the play is Hamlet kind of sidestepping that responsibility or maybe I think a better way to look at it is he is looking for an opportunity that he can avenge his father and also save his own neck. I I think that's what's going on. I, I think there's kind of a, there's a known, there's a known equation in the play that, for us not living in a under a monarchy it's easy for us to miss which is the moment that hamlet raises his hand against an existing monarch he's a dead man he's dead and i think that everyone in shakespeare's audience would just be living with that all the time if i ever uttered a word against queen elizabeth i'm i am facing a death sentence we can speak against our president anytime we want to and, you know, broadcast it on Twitter. No big deal, right? I think that Hamlet is willing to kind of like take up the pebble. But I also think that he is also wanting to save his own skin and in wanting to kind of have both his revenge and his own life, I think he falters. I think he begins to lose himself a little bit. I think he... um starts to crack up under the strain and also even kind of like go backwards and doubt what the ghost said to him. Andrew. I don't deny that. I don't question it. I wonder, however, whether um, 
another element in all of this isn't Hamlet's noble mind and sense of duty, which is right. he is supposed to be the king. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if he just kills Claudius in a disorderly way, then that's the end of Denmark. He needs to figure out how to kill Claudius in a way that preserves the Danish kingdom. And I think, therefore, there's a third. There, there's, it's not just for, for Hamlet. It's not just personal survival. It, it never can be. It's always it's always about the fact that he's the king of Denmark, which he seems. To, well, I won't go into act four right now, but that, that's that's not something we can simply set aside. It's not it's not the whole picture, but it's not sim- something we can simply set aside. And Andrew, do you think that the play within the play is his attempt to kind of out Claudius and thus begin sort of like a, um, a transit if he outs Claudius and Claudius leaps up in the middle of the play, like he does, maybe then Hamlet is hoping that he's not the only one who sees Claudius's guilt. Do you think that's part of the motive behind the play within the play? I think the primary motive, as I understand it, is to get clarity for himself. But a potential benefit would certainly be that he would then be able to make a case. He would, he would then have evidence that he could present to other people that, that he was doing the right thing. It's hard to kill somebody, though, because it's hard to make a case in court based on a, seeing a ghost. Right. But, it, but, but he has he has other evidence. He has I mean, to your, you're exactly right. You know, but the idea of supernatural beings was not beyond the pale. It wouldn't be the same way that we would go into court and say, like, a ghost told me and people would be like, OK, but that then it was more likely to be believed. And he also has Horatio and Marcellus and and this he has backup of his story from witnesses that could say exactly what the ghost had said well they couldn't actually they weren't there when the ghost was revealing himself to hamlet but they saw the ghost ghost, well you're right yeah they we do have independent we have corroboration that the ghost was real which i think is pretty invaluable in the story but you're right nobody else saw that and then when he has the scene with gertrude here gertrude can't see the ghost um, which makes that particular scene a little bit more ambiguous. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right. We don't have independent corroboration of what the ghost told Hamlet that could be useful in a court of law if he was building a case. And so you're right. The, the scene that the play within a play could provide at least some corroboration for people in the room to be like, yeah, he did act pretty guilty. Um, I, I just, I just think Hamlet and this particular scene is, or this whole act is so fascinating to me because his motives to me, I'm about to say something pretty um, personal about my response to it. His motives to me seem understandable, but I couldn't put words to them. Do you know what I mean? Like I couldn't explain it, but he seems so human and mm. relatable in this scene and in this whole act. But at the same time, also kind of like lost in the dark labyrinth of his own heart. And your point about Denmark, I think, Andrew, is so important because 
so much of this play is 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 existential to each of the characters and yet also very public um and that there's a nation at stake in which there has been a sickness and madness and death and deviancy within the state that is reflected in each character and also in the play as a whole there's just this sense of like the walls closing in and 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 that the, the madness that has been previously hidden and the disease that has been previously hidden is becoming more and more visible, first through Ophelia and then through kind of these ripple effects you to know, the other characters. That's, that's such a good way to put it. One of the things that, if I can go meta here, what Shakespeare seems to be doing is, dare I say, teach us how to read. Because the normal text that you read you know, the first time you read it, the first time I read a text, I don't really get it, but I'm okay with it. You know, I enjoy it or don't get it. The second time I then try to understand it better. And then by the third or fourth time, I'm, I'm trying to get into it. And generally speaking, the third or fourth time I read a text, the average text, I'm going, okay, I, I kind of get what's, especially a history text. I, I, I get what's going on here. But in Hamlet, Shakespeare is, is constantly saying, how can I put this? If you aren't willing to defer understanding, you can't be a good reader. And Shakespeare is almost demanding of the reader that you defer your understanding. Can I say forever or, or just, you know, you know, we talk about an infinite regression. I don't want to say infinitely, but it's like any time you draw a conclusion about Hamlet, Shakespeare undercuts that conclusion. And so so he's he's constantly forcing you to reopen your mind. And yet the whole time he's doing that, there is a there is a there there, right? There is something, there is some reality there that he's revealing. It's like he's he's taking the multiplicity, he's taking the multiplicity of of existence to reveal the oneness in some incredibly ironic way. But as soon as you say this is what it's about, or this is what's going on here something's going to happen that undercuts it and forces you to start reading again. You said, I think in act one, Andrew, that T.S. Eliot complained that Hamlet, the play was an artistic failure. And your kind of counter proposal was maybe it's like all of life is in Hamlet or like a, maybe a real living being, this character Hamlet is in Hamlet. And that's the reason that, T.S. Eliot called it artistic failures because there's not what an author, a novelist, a playwright usually does is you highlight those outstanding characteristics of the character. And those are the, those are the keys that you play. Mm. Um, and certainly Hamlet has those keys to be played. He's ingenious. He's passionate. He's logical. But in the middle of like playing those keys, it, Shakespeare seems to be playing like the full gamut of a person, you know? So this, this act, Heidi, you're like, this is a real human being I'm encountering here, mm-hmm. you know? And because in some ways he's so erratic. Like that's one of the things right. that even though those, those keys are being played by Shakespeare, there's a certain 
unpredictability to him, to the character. Now you've got me wanting to do a, to talk to a musical theorist and ask him to put musical theory against the characters and movement. Oh, that'd be interesting. I bet you Shakespeare's doing something with that. Yeah. Well, and I, I love what you're saying, Tim. I was thinking about this lately (laughs) with what, and what you said, Andrew, and you brought up again, Tim, about Hamlet being an artistic failure. And I've been thinking a lot about um, my own life. My my mother just died about a month ago. And so that's just like sent me into this, like thinking about the story of my life kind of thing. And I think if someone there's there's this inner coherence to my life story, which I'm not going to tell you guys right now, because it would make a really bad play, right? Like it would, if someone wrote a play about my life, it would be an artistic failure. And yet there is like this coherence to it, this harmony and dissonance that makes sense, right? It's playing a song. It's, it's creating this, it's, it's creating something that would be a failure if you made it into a piece of art. And yet there is this coherence. And, and I think that that's what Hamlet does to my soul when I read it, Mm. that I, I recognize in it, the humanity, and it's not just of Hamlet. It's of all of them. Mm. It's even Claudius, right? It's all of them. It's, it's Gertrude and how she in act three is so repentant and please forgive me, son. And what do you need from me? I'll do anything you say. And then act four, she's spying on her son again, like one page later, right? It's this, there is something to the inner contradictions of being human, the paradoxes of being human that still we respond to when we are, uh, when, when we meet it, when we encounter it yeah. from the outside, we're like, Hamlet's like a real guy, even though nothing he does makes any sense. Right? Yeah. 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 Thanks, Heidi. The closing scene of this act is Hamlet with Gertrude and an incognito Polonius. In the scene, Hamlet is called to his mother's closet, his mother's room, and she's going to confront him because he's made a mockery of the king, her husband. And Hamlet uses this occasion to turn the mirror back at her. And he does. And I, I think... I think putting those two characters, Claudius's kind of like refusal to repent next to his wife's acceptance of repentance, you know, he puts them side by side to Shakespeare, right back and forth in front of each other. And that's a really potent juxtaposition. But Hamlet is... Hamlet's relationship with his mom, more ink has been spilt about this relationship, I think, than maybe any other like parental child relationship in, you know, history outside of the biblical canon. There's so much going on here. Hamlet is um, angry, so angry at Gertrude. And he loves her also. He's very clearly, he ha- he's extremely fond of her. Um. And he's a little bit obsessive and Freud made a really big deal out of it, out of his mother's intimate relationship with Claudius. What do we, I just, what do we make of Hamlet and Gertrude? 
what is going on here? And, and I'm especially curious about why Hamlet is so obsessive with Gertrude's relationship with Claudius, the king, his uncle. He, he, do you have any thoughts about this, Heidi? Oh, I have thoughts about this. I w- I'd love to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the modern Freudian interpretation is entirely supported by the text. It is, you like, say. Yes, yeah. I believe that it is. However, I'm not completely convinced that Shakespeare himself was throwing this out as some kind of like Oedipal complex on um, on Hamlet's part. Um, I am, I completely understand the contradictory nature of his relationship with his mom though, mm. because he's a young man and I now have a 15 year old son and the older that my son gets, the more I understand how incredibly formative my virtue as a mother is on my son. Like to be a virtuous woman is a really big deal to a young a, a, a son. And mothers have this formative power in a young man's life just by virtue of her femininity and its power over him. And, and so for, I completely understand all the way why Hamlet is so hard on Gertrude, even taking out the possibility of a Freudian interpretation of Mm -hmm. this relationship. Mm -hmm. Like his cry to her, his lament to her is like, you have betrayed my father and you have betrayed my trust because I needed you to be a woman of virtue and you're not. Like there's enough there to be as complex as we need it to be. Yeah. Yeah. That was really well said. That was really well said. Andrew, do you have more to add to that? Do you, do you think there's a lot there? Um, do you think it's worth this relationship between Hamlet and his mother? Is it worth all the ink that's been spilled? Well, I don't know how much ink's been spilled, so I don't know how to value it. But <laughs> I think it's very complex. And, and I'll just add that, that it's, obviously, um, it's obviously got a sexual tension. And and so so interestingly does this relationship with Ophelia, right? So so the so the talk that they have, the letter, the letters that Hamlet wrote to Ophelia, and then the confrontation that we talked about a bit earlier, and then the discussion, the talking that they do during the play. In all three of those cases, Hamlet has sometimes pretty explicit and sometimes pretty implicit sexual undertones and overtones going on there. And so that, that indicates that whether it's because of Gertrude or for other, some other, or just human nature, Hamlet's become a bit distorted sexually. He, he's, he's trying to, um, his sexual energy is, is not being directed and controlled the way he knows it needs to be. And that may possibly contribute to the, uh, to the madness that he undergoes. Yeah. But the, uh, uh, Heidi pointed out earlier that, that when Hamlet says get to a nunnery, that, that 
that was a slang term for a brothel. Mm-hmm. And so, so Hamlet is, is potentially doing two things there. He's on the one hand, he could be saying to Ophelia, you should go to a nunnery because that's the place holy people go and it would be safe for you. And then, you know, you wouldn't have children and that would be a really good thing if you didn't have any children because children, it's a terrible world. Even the best of us are really bad. And so there, there's that, that's, that's good. And then there's the get thee to a brothel, get thee to a nunnery because I mean, what, what the heck, the life is nothing like this, this whole thing is a joke and, and it's all distorted. So, so just go ahead and give yourself up to it. I've lost all my respect for you. And I think in a way what Hamlet is doing there and with Gertrude in both cases is he's presenting, he's presenting options to the, to the viewer, to the listener meaning Gertrude and, and Ophelia, that they then have to decide what they're going how they're going to interpret it and how they're going to act on it. And I think he's doing the same or Shakespeare's doing the same thing to us. He's saying, I'm not telling you what all of this means. You have to figure this out. And that comes back to the learning how to read, right? That, that we have to figure out what this means. And then, and then we have to keep exploring it because it's, it's deeply unsettling. And in a way to read Hamlet, requires a capacity for being deeply unsettled within yourself while you're reading it because he's going to put pictures up of two kings right in front of your face. And those two kings actually are going to be revealing you to you. They're mirrors that he's holding up to your own nature. And, and it's, it's deeply unsettling to read it that way. I think that might be why there's so much ink spilled is because by spilling the ink, we can explain it and then not have to deal with it. Hmm. Well, I agree completely. And I think that the kind of like the the angel whore dichotomy that we have that's explored in a lot of literature, the perception of men towards women and how do I how do I understand this woman? Um, is it possible to have elements of both or is every woman either an angel or a whore? And we have here in in Hamlet, uh, he can't. Man, he can't decide about Ophelia, right? And then the nun or the play on word of nunnery is just so profoundly brilliant on Shakespeare's part because of exactly the tension between that perception of men towards women, especially a woman, women as important as a, somebody that you're in love with, as Ophelia is, and your own mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like she was an angel until a month ago mm-hmm. and now she's a whore. Right. And how does a man who's on the verge of marriage and vocation, how does he make sense of that? How can you come to any kind of peace about femininity and womanhood for the future with that kind of profound disruption in a life? Yeah. And that is the that's what he's trying to hold her accountable to here in act three. He's raging at her. And but he's asking a legitimate question, which is, what do I do with womanhood with what now the type that you have given me? Right? I don't think there are very many women who are willing to think what you just thought, Heidi, who are willing to who are willing to look at the masculine nature and how ma- how maleness looks at femaleness and just accept it as as mixed. Right. It's just reality. It's an un. It's an unchangeable reality. And, and the woman right. has to, the, the woman has to recognize the unfathomable, is it power, influence, 
um, whatever that that mother and lover have on man. And, and it's the same opposite the, the other way, too, I think. But I think I think in our age, particularly, perhaps, perhaps there's a there's an impatience with the monster side of the male, let's call it, or, or the dark side or the or the male side. <laughs> there's an impatience with the authoritative or the strong or the protective or the violent side of the male, all of which are part of maleness. Right. And 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 the way you just expressed it, recognizing both the way I'm taking it anyway, maybe I'm contorting what you said, but but recognizing the complexity of maleness and the dependence of maleness on femaleness without condescending or despising the male. That's, that's not something that is commonly done. I don't know if it's ever been commonly done. What you just, mm. well, you it's just hard. said is really profound to me. Well, thank you. And it is hard. And I look at, and that's why I said earlier, there's enough of a complexity for Hamlet to deal with his mother's sexual relationship with his uncle without meaning that Hamlet is secretly in love with his mom. Right. 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 Like there's, I, I think that's supported by the text. Like I, I don't dismiss the Freudian interpretation, but I, it's enough confusing and disorienting to this young man's psyche for life to deal with what she has done, the way she he's perceived her hanging on his father's every word, right? There's enough now for him to be mm. wounded for the rest of his life mm -hmm. by her actions. And she can just say, I'm just a normal woman. I have needs, right? But like, that's not how boys see their moms. And, and it strikes and, me too. As you, yeah. Sorry. That's all. But, well, as you say that, every every boy is a bit embarrassed by every child is a bit embarrassed when their parents are affectionate, right? Right. But then, but, but what happens with Hamlet then is he gets his mother's sexuality, as it were, thrown in his face because, because she's just not being affectionate to her, his dad. She's throwing his dad aside in order to have what is clearly a sexual relationship with his dad's brother, right? And so now he, he has no choice. He's got just as he holds the two images up to Gertrude, she has held up two images up to him. And he has no choice now but to think about, consciously think about his mother's sexual nature. And maybe part of that is that being compelled to think about his mother's sexual nature, he then, a part of him is sexually attracted to her. Right? That's, that could right. just be maleness. Right. I, I, Agreed. I can't understand that one, but well, that could just be male. Agreed. And also that makes perfect sense to me why he is so hard on Ophelia. I think mm. this is why it's it's so much more than the stated reasons. It's so much more than what it seems to be. I don't think he's just hard on Ophelia because he is testing her and trying to, and, and about Polonius. I think he's profoundly disordered in his soul towards women right now. And of course, the person he's going to take that out on is his, is this girl, right? Because now he's wondering, what are you going to do to me? How are you going to betray me? Oh, that's your dad mm -hmm. who's spying on me as I'm making, you know, like. Do you, and, think, do you think maybe what he's doing with Ophelia is, is on the one hand, protecting himself from her and on the other hand, giving her instructions? Yes. And, and so, so there's like a code in what he's saying to her when he's saying, get me to a nunnery, you know, make, go, go find a safe spot, get away mm -hmm. from me, go and, and, and 
Right. And I meant I did love you, but I didn't love you. Right. It, it is maybe he's he's saying to her, I can't deal with this. OK, I, I can't tell you straight what I want right. to tell you. So you're right. going to have to figure this out. But this is the best I can do. Now, please think this through and make the right applications. Right. And she is a naive girl under the thumb of, of multiple strong willed men. And mm. I, I Some think that there's, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a perfect storm, the relationship between the two at this particular time in both of their lives. And we have just such an, such a look into what happens to a, a disordered soul within a male and female relationship, right? And how one sin begets another. Um, and with Ophelia, one of the big questions of the play that I know I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about when we do act four is how, what was the extent of Hamlet and Ophelia's relationship previous to this? And if there was a sexual component to their relationship, which is unclear in the play and many, many people have taken, had taken sides on it and tried to make a case either way. But if there was, then, then it, it becomes, I think, even more clear, the question of angel whore, nunnery, nunnery, right? And, and, and Hamlet's controlling cruelty towards Ophelia in this scene. She's so bewildered by it. Um, but there's, there just really is this complexity to Hamlet and Ophelia that I think ties back to Gertrude. And I think that's why these two women bookend act three. Oh, that's a, that's a great observation. Yeah. Like the conflict between the yeah. two. And you start with Ophelia and you're like, what in the heck is going on? Uh-huh. And then we get to Gertrude, you're kind of like, oh, there's a lot happening here in Hamlet's soul that's so disordered. Yeah. And it's and it's com- coming out all over the place. Yeah, that's a great observation, Heidi. We've reached the end of act three, you guys. Um, votes for any rivals to act three of Hamlet as the most action-packed, important, potent act that he wrote. Maybe act three of Julius Caesar, Friends, Romans, Countrymen, the two great orations. Act five of Romeo and Juliet. Act five of Romeo and Juliet. That's a great nomination also. Act three of Macbeth. Ooh, act three of Macbeth. No, there's so much in act three of Macbeth. Act three of For nuance, complexity, uh, ambiguity, uh, and maybe just sheer volume of important things happening in a row, I'd say Act 3 of Hamlet definitely wins. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, if you want to say the the convergence point of the whole cosmos and and the human mind (laughs) crushing itself, the the, the black hole into which the whole of human civilization descends, it'd be Act 3 of Hamlet. (laughs) All right. Not to overstate things. Andrew, we opened the show with Andrew Scott's uh, to be or not to be speech. Is that your favorite acting performance of to be or not to be? Well, I can't I can't comment on that, really. It's not my favorite version of to be or not to be, because there's one that's. I mean, it's written. not your favorite version. Yeah. Well, there's one there's a written version that I'm exceedingly fond of, but I but I don't have any recording of it. And, and it's well, actually, do you have it at hand? Yeah. I do, but well, let's just hear it. Okay. Well, yeah, the thing about it is this discussion has been really serious. Like we've been <laughs> dancing around the black hole. So maybe we need this because this is not a serious version of the to be or not to be speech. Okay. 
this is going to be a, a shift I'll tell of gears. You, I'll tell you afterward the source, but this is really a great one. Okay, you ready? You want to hear this? Really? All I right. I want to yes. hear it. All right. For sure. Thousand percent. No interruptions. No interruptions. All right. To be or not to be, that is the bare bodkin that makes calamity of so long life. For who would fardels bear till Burnham would do come to, do come to Dunsinane, but that the fear of something after death murders the innocent sleep, great nature's second course, and makes us rather sling the arrows of outrageous fortune than fly to others that we know not of. There's the respect must give us pause. Wake, Duncan, with thy knocking. I would thou couldst, for who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the law's delay, and the quietus which his pangs might take in the dead waste and middle of the night when churchyards yawn in customary suits of solemn black, but that the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns breathe forth contagion on the world, and thus the native hue of resolution, like the poor cat in the adage, is sicklied o'er with the care, and all the clouds that lowered o'er our housetops. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. But soft you, the fair Ophelia, ope not thy ponderous and marble jaws, but get thee to a nunnery. Go! <laughs> That's like, 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 like a remix of about four different soliloquies. It's Mark Twain. Oh, that's from Huck Finn. Yes. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to guess it was one of your grandchildren who, like, yeah. Yeah. who knew like, one of the monologues and knew a couple of Macbeth and Richard the Third monologues also. It, that it, was it, perfect. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It's chapter twenty-one of Huckleberry Finn, where some actors get on the on the raft with them, and it's it's a hysterical scene. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, really 21. Nice job. Well read, too. Yeah, I have to say, well the voice was my favorite well, part. Well, I like that because you can go over the top, right? And the no skill is yeah, absolutely. Just do it over the top. <laughs> absolutely. Acting without Tripping nuance is on my the objective. Tongue very well. What's that? <laughs> I said you you performed it trippingly on oh, the tongue. You held a mirror up to nature. Tropically, yeah. 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 Tropically. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to Act 3 of Hamlet. Um, we'd love to hear from you, as always, on the Close Reads Facebook page. Any questions you have for Heidi, Andrew, or myself, we will have a Q&A episode when we finish Act 5. Until then, thank you for joining us, and we encourage you, as always, to read along with us. Thanks for being here. you got to be cruel to be kind in the right Cruel to be kind